All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. Uh, hey, this morning, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. I know I just mixed things up a little bit. Some of you are like, wait, what? No, let's do. Let's, uh, let's just uh, pause for a moment and just prepare our hearts as we open God's Word. I pray that something inside of each of us would open as well. Because sometimes, did you know what? Sometimes we go to the Word. Sometimes we are in the actual living presence of God. And we are kind of oblivious to it. I am. I am. I mean, I know you probably think I'm this like, you know, like Gandalf character in the life of faith. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, there's days where I'm just like pretty oblivious. And uh, I don't know you might be too. And so maybe as we prepare to encounter God with intention, with, a, with anticipation, perhaps it's best for us to pause for a moment and make ourselves available and say, Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Father, we uh, come to you right now and we uh, quiet our hearts. We quiet ourselves. We, we, we gather up all the things that have happened this week, all the good and all the bad, all the exciting and all the really uh, discouraging stuff. And we hold those out to you in open hands and say, God, take this, transform this. God, and at the reading of your word, I pray that you would read something into each of our hearts, that you would transform our minds, that you would help us see clearly the kind of people that you've called us to be, the kind of work that you desire to do in each and every one of us that we would go from this place with a, with a sense that we've been sent out on purpose, that there's good, healing work that you've called us to be about in the world, and it's right there in front of us, that this week you might do something, and we might get to be a part of that, God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand all that you would say to us through your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, today we are continuing in our Rock of Ages series. This is week number seven. And today's message is called, Tale as Old as Time. Today I'd like to begin by recalling a tale as old as time. True as it can be. <laughs> Barely even friends. Then somebody bends. Unexpectedly. Just a little change, small to say the least. Both <laughs> a little scared. Neither one prepared. Beauty and the Beast. Ever just the same. Ever a surprise. Ever as before. Ever just as sure. As the sun will rise. Tale as old as time. Tune as old as song. Bittersweet bitter and strange. Finding you can change. Learning you were wrong. Certain as the sun. Rising in the east. Tale as old as time. Song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Bow your heads. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what in the world am I doing there? Right? I, I, I tried to have Chloe teach me how to sing that. Like, Ange what's her name? Angela Lansbury? Yeah, but I, I couldn't get it right. So I just recited it in my best uh, Shakespearean there. Well, here's the thing. There's a pretty good chance that you knew what I was doing there, right? How many of you were kind of singing it in your head as I was reciting it, right? There's a good chance that you're familiar with the story of Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Uh, what happens in the story of the Beauty and the Beast? Well, there's this arrogant, uh, uncaring prince who has been sent into exile. He's been turned into a beast, a horrible beast, and sent into exile in a castle. He's been cursed by an enchantress because he refused to help her in time of need. And then there's Belle, 
Who's Belle? Belle is a beautiful, kind village girl, and she ends up being held captive by the beast. Why? Because she offered herself. She offered herself in exchange for her father, who had sought refuge at that castle after getting lost on his way to an inventor's fair in a distant land. The beast is hideous in appearance. The beast is hideous and will remain so unless what? He finds what? True love. Yeah, right. He has to find true love. He will remain hideous uh, unless he finds true love before turning 21 or before the last petal falls from a magical rose. If he doesn't find true love and get a girl to love him back, he will be doomed to, re to remain a grotesque beast forever, ugly, sad, and alone. At first, Belle finds the beast repulsive, crass, and rude, which he is. He's repulsive, crass, and rude. There's nothing about the beast to like because he's repulsive, crass, and rude. That's on his business card. It's like, hey, my name's Beast. I'm repulsive, crass, and rude. That's just how he is. That's his, uh, his, his temperament. But here's the thing. Over time, something happens, doesn't it? Over time, Belle begins to see past the beast's rough exterior. She starts to see a heart that actually can care for other people. She starts to see a creature that desires to love and to be loved in return. Could she see that at first? No, absolutely not, because he was repulsive, crass, and rude. Overwhelmingly so. Overpoweringly so. But over time, she started to catch glimpses. It's like, oh, he does have a heart. He does want to be loved. And he is capable of loving. And you know the story. Belle eventually finds herself falling helplessly in love with the beast. And after working through some issues with Gaston, the village bully who has the hots for Belle, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, they see that curse broken. And as most Disney tales go, they lived Happily ever after. Right? That's all, all good fairy tales end, right? The curse is broken, and they live happily ever after. This well-known story, it exemplifies the power of changed perspectives. The power of changed perspectives, of, of learning to see differently, of looking past prejudices, and learning day by day how to love. Paradigm shifts. Those things that come and wreck us at first, challenge us, overwhelm us at first. But over time, we start to see that this was necessary. It was valuable and it was critical. It had to happen in us if we were to become something new and see in a new way. Have you ever had a Beauty and the Beast type transformation in your life? I mean, sure, not the castle and grotesque, crass beast, but... Maybe you've had a Beauty and the Beast type transformation before. An experience that moved you from a place of rejection toward a place of relationship. Maybe you were moved from a place of a response of repulsion into a response of compassion. Has this happened to you? 
Have you been challenged and confronted this way before? A beauty and the beast transformation. You see, at the middle of the, in the center of this, this fairy tale, a powerful moral resonates. There's a powerful moral resonating in the story of Beauty and the Beast. Maybe you've been beauty, or maybe you've been the beast, but you found your heart changed through unexpected encounters and new understandings. Whether your heart changed from cold arrogance to warm kindness, as happened with the beast, or from fearful dread into durable love, as happened with Belle, many of us have been truly transformed by this kind of encounter and this valuable awakening. If you're not thinking of an experience right now, be ready. Because there's things in us that the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us with and help us to see with new eyes how we can love, how we can care, how we can be about God's healing work in the world. But first, we've got to get past ourselves. So be ready. So as we continue in the story of Peter, examining the life of the Apostle Peter, we discover a moment where God finds it necessary to give Peter a new perspective. Peter has a Beauty and the Beast moment, right? God needs to move Peter from his very Jewish understanding of Gentiles as being unclean and gross toward a more global and a more inclusive understanding of God's ambition to seek and save all that was lost. All that was lost. And sometimes when, when, we, when we understand that God's plan is for all, that feels a little willy-nilly, right? It's like, wait, wait, you don't mean everybody, right? Yeah, you're not seeking all that was lost. I mean, clearly by all, there's an asterisk like, oh, you mean the Jewish people or the people that you like or the people that do things like us and sin in similar ways to us, right? No, God's desire is to seek and save all that was lost. In order for the good news of Jesus Christ to achieve God's intended goal of reaching all the nations, of welcoming all people into his family, Peter's prejudice had to be confronted and challenged in order to prepare him. In order to prepare Peter for the work that lay ahead, God had to challenge him, confront him, so that he could be ready. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, we read the story of a Roman officer named Cornelius. Cornelius. An angel of the Lord appears and commands Cornelius to send men to Peter. In Joppa, Cornelius' men are to find Peter and bid him to come to Caesarea at once so Cornelius and his household can hear the good news. As a result, Cornelius and his whole household, his whole household of Gentiles, they believe. Cornelius and his whole household of Gentiles, they believe and they are converted and they are filled with the Holy Spirit as they become the first recorded Gentile converts, basically non-Jewish converts to faith in Jesus Christ. This experience had a profound impact on the Apostle Peter and the rest of the Apostles and the early church. And much to our benefit, it set the gospel free to spread around the world. You and I are beneficiaries of this encounter that Peter had with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit. So turn your Bible to Acts chapter 10. There's a Bible in front of you there. Acts chapter 10, you can follow along on your phone. But this is going to be a, just 
stretch out, warm up a little bit. We're doing 66 verses here, so hang tight. But it's a good story, and it's worth the read. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry, but while a meal was, still be was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. <laughs> no, Lord, no, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? And they said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up! I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. And Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And Cornelius replied, Four days ago I was praying in my house about this time, this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. 
In every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching the message of baptism. And you know that God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge, to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. 11 verse 1. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. When I looked inside this sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds, and I heard a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. <laughs> no, Lord, I replied. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call anything unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all, its con all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers... Here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, Send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's last words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift He gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, We can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Whew. You see why I read the whole thing? What a story! I sound like Steve Irwin. What a story! Look at this. It's right here. 
I mean, that's amazing. Do you see what happened there? The Holy Spirit was doing some heavy lifting. Years and years, generation after generation of precedent, of heritage passed on to Peter that was, uh, he was being confronted with. Go to a Gentile's home and eat with him. No, no way. At a very basic level in him, it's like, no, no, no. That would be sin. I cannot do that. So Luke devotes 66 verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, verse 18, to this story, which illustrates its importance in understanding God's purposes in calling Cornelius, yes, but God's purposes in calling the Gentiles. According to the Expositor's Bible Commentary, two things are happening here. We see that the early church is resistant The early church is resisting the idea of Gentiles being evangelized, resisting the idea of Gentiles, non-Jews, being evangelized and accepted into the Christian fellowship apart from any relationship to Judaism. I mean, that's part of the very practical reaction. It's like they don't know anything about the law. They don't know anything about Moses. You've got to do a whole bunch of preparatory work if they're going to jump right in. Apparently not. Apparently not. The door swings open. They're welcomed into God's family without any of the prerequisites. So that's the first thing we see. The early church is resistant. But number two, God himself is the one kicking that door open. God is the one who is introducing the Gentiles into the church and showing them his approval. He's doing it first. What does that mean? That God is the one that's going ahead of the church and saying, watch me work. You paying attention? Watch me work. He's the one showing approval. He's the one showing acceptance to the Gentiles. The Jewish Christians, including the capital A apostles, they had a dangerously limited understanding of who the good news of Jesus Christ was for. They had a dangerously narrow, exclusive understanding of what Jesus had accomplished and who it was for. Even though God expressed His desire to redeem all creation all throughout the Old Testament, Jewish believers, they couldn't imagine that He also meant pagans. I mean, yeah, God's gracious and merciful, but pagans? People that are actively living a life opposed to God? Living in every wrong way imaginable? Surely he doesn't mean pagans. Sure, God had graciously sent Jesus to save his people, the Israelites, from sin and death, but there's no way his plan included the nasty, godless Gentiles, right? I mean, something in us maybe prefers that still. That God would only call to himself uh, decent, well-behaved people. But he doesn't. Look at who he's called. Look at who Paul's addressing in his letters. He lists us this just level of gross behavior, these lists of gross behavior. And the very next verse he says, And this is who you were. These are the kind of people you were, church. And God has called you from that. He's healed you from that. He's delivered you from the bondage of sin. Just like this list I gave you. That's what he's delivered you from. In his zeal for God, the Apostle Peter had assumed that he must stay pure and undefiled at all costs. He would honor God by never violating any Jewish laws, as he mentions, he points out in verse 14. He would, uh, he would never violate any Jewish laws, thus avoiding contact with un, un, unclean things 
and people read Gentiles. There's a reason why this sheet comes down. It's filled with all kinds of animals and ostensibly animals he wasn't supposed to eat. Animals that had been identified as unclean. You don't eat these foods. Well, that was a stepping stone into a fuller understanding. It's like, nothing. do not call something I've made clean unclean. Whether it be food or whether it be people. You see, Peter was making some harmful assumptions. Peter was making some harmful assumptions about what it meant to be sent into the world to make disciples, just as Jesus commanded. He made some assumptions that were limiting. Clearly, God needed to do some work here. God needed to do some work in Peter, and God needed to do some work in the apostles. And I've got a hunch that God might need to do some work among us too. God needed to break down these presumptions in order to initiate His global plan of salvation, which would reach to the ends of the earth, not just to the ends of Israel or Judea, but to the ends of the earth. And His plan had to start with Peter. Why? Why did it have to start with Peter? Because Peter was the leader of the apostles, and Peter would become the leader of the church. So what that means is, as Peter went, so would go the church. Peter was a key player. He had to be changed. He had to catch the vision. Otherwise, if he didn't, it would change the trajectory, not just of his life, but of the whole church. As Peter went, so would go the church itself. Um, unless Peter's perspective could be changed, the church would have a real problem. The church would have a real problem understanding and participating in Jesus' ongoing mission. We, too, can find ourselves propping up our prejudices with moral, righteous reasoning and, as a result, end up missing out on where God is at work. Did you hear what I said there? We're not unlike Peter here. We're not unlike the good, God-fearing Jewish believers in Jesus. We, too, can find ourselves propping up our prejudices with moral, righteous reasoning and as a result, end up missing out on where God is at work. Tragedy of tragedies. Tragedy of tragedies. We can cling to assumptions about what God desires and end up missing opportunities to love those people that He has placed right in front of us. Is there a bigger tragedy? That we'd be standing there with our eyes covered, our ears closed, and our mouth... What is that? Yeah, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I mean, we, we could miss it. Tragedy of tragedies, that we could have uh, these, these naive assumptions about God and because of them miss out on what He's doing and loving the people He's placed right in front of us. What does God need to do? What does God need to do in your life and in my life to better align us with His will and with His work in the world? How does God need to come to you and awaken you? Maybe He doesn't need to lower a vision of a sheet down in front of you. But maybe there's something just as powerful and confronting he needs to do in your life. Christy and I, I don't want to speak for my wife here. <laughs> she may totally, I don't think you disagree. We'll see. But Christy and I, we had a Beauty and the Beast experience several years ago uh, as foster parents. When we were uh, in, uh, pretty early into foster parenting, when we had uh, taken one of our first placements, 
We had taken one of our first placements of a child that had been taken into foster care. Naively, I, I held some assumptions. I assumed, one, that foster care was for abused and neglected kids, and two, that birth parents were monsters. That my job as a foster parent was to take kids, care of kids that were being abused and neglected, and two, their birth parents were monsters. They were hell-bent on harming their kids. They, 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 they felt glee in harming misery, bringing misery upon their children. That, that was just a settled assumption I had. I carried these prejudices with me as we traveled to participate in our first meeting with our foster child's birth mom. I anticipated feeling righteous disgust upon laying eyes on this evil person who had neglected her child so badly. Scarcely believing that she might even be human, let alone do any sort of respect, let alone do my sympathy. And why shouldn't I feel that way, right? I mean, is there a better case to have righteous indignation, moral outrage towards somebody? Why shouldn't I feel that way? Jesus Christ himself had said people who harm kids should have a millstone tied around their necks and they should be dropped in the deepest part of the ocean. Jesus said that. I mean, I should be high-fiving him in that moment. And he'd be like good game in me as I walk in that room, like go get her. No. Why, why shouldn't I feel that way? But here's the thing. I remember walking into that room at family services in Taney County, Missouri, and being struck, being stopped in my tracks. I was struck by how small, how young, and how scared the birth mom was. Not who I expected. She looked nervous. She was embarrassed. And to my surprise, she was really happy to see her child. It was easier for me to assume that they had no moral, uh, emotional capacity, that they couldn't really love their kids, otherwise they wouldn't have done this thing. No, she loved her kid, and she was so embarrassed. She desired to be a better person. During that first visit, we got to hear her story, and I quickly discovered that she wasn't the horrible person I had imagined. Instead, she too was a victim. She was a victim too. She had been abused, she had been neglected, and here we were. She, too, was a victim. She had been raised in a, a dysfunctional, drug-polluted, broken family system filled with generational abuse and neglect. She had very few family members or friends who weren't also drug-addicted and who weren't also losing their children to foster care. So where could she go? Who could she reach out to for help? When everyone around her is in the same boat, everyone around her is on the same sinking ship, where does she go for help? This young mother had been left on her own in the world. She should have been cared for herself. She should have been cared for. And when, she should have been cared for when she was young, and someone should have protected her too. Someone should have protected her too when she was vulnerable. And so, what happened? The broken legacy was tragically passed on to her and through her, and now it involved us. I soon realized that she had really wanted to be a good mom, but she didn't know how. 
No one had ever been a good mom to her. No one had ever been a good dad to her. I was startled to find my heart swelling for her as my eyes were opened and my disdain for this birth mom changed to compassion. By the end of the visit, Christy and I felt a connection with her, desiring to help her be healed, to be set free, to be loved, and to, if possible, be restored. Suddenly, we understood that she was in our care too. It wasn't just the child. She was in our care too. That encounter was a powerful paradigm shift for me. Can you imagine? I mean, it was like screeching tires. I mean, it was massive. In a short amount of time, my whole worldview, my whole assumptions just shattered. In that moment, a powerful paradigm shift. It helped me see others, especially those I often reject, as God sees them and as God sees me. To see them as helpless, as broken, and in deep need of rescue, of care, of love, and of healing. Guys, that's how God sees us. So far be it from me to resist seeing someone else that way. Someone else who is equally an image bearer, but is equally helpless, broken, and in deep need of rescue, love, healing, and care. In a way, being a foster parent led me to my Cornelius encounter. Being a foster parent helped me become better prepared to fully participate in God's work in the world, even in, especially in, very uncomfortable places. So what about you? What about you? How might God want to open your eyes? How might God want to confront you? How might He desire to challenge you to get beyond your prejudices and your preconceptions, those that are keeping you from engaging in the work of the gospel? Who is it you see as being beyond God's love? Who is it you see as being despised? Who is it you see as being unacceptable? Who is it that is unclean? Who is it for you that is unqualified to be part of God's family? How has your religious zeal for God blinded you to His work? How might God be wanting to... Uh, what might God be wanting to show you in order to set you free? Who might God bring to you to convince you of His desire to save the whole wide world and to see you embrace your role in that plan. This week, here's my prayer for you. This week, may you be confronted. May you be confronted by, with a Cornelius moment and find yourself part of this tale as old as time, true as it can be. And then, may we all, though it be bittersweet and strange, may we find that we can change and learn that we were wrong and to see our beasts changed into beauties by the good news of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and for the life of the world. Slam dunk. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for the way it comes and pokes us right in the chest. God, I pray that you'd make us mindful of the ways you've been at work in us and around us. God, maybe you've brought us to moments that have broken us. Moments that have challenged us and caused us to, to pivot, to change, to shift our perspectives, to have our paradigms just broken wide open. 
Lord, if that's not happened, I pray that it would. As uncomfortable as it can be, it's very dramatic. And it's very necessary. God, we desire to honor you. We truly desire to honor you. And God, sometimes we're holding on to uh, the law. Sometimes we're holding on to moral guidelines that we just have held on to since our childhood. And those very things, those good and godly things that you've placed in us and given us in your word, sometimes can become blinders. They can keep us from going where you send us. They can keep us from believing what you might be doing in our world. How reckless your grace might be that it would go beyond our preconceived boundaries. That it would burst right over the banks of our assumptions and flow out to other people. People that we don't understand. People that we despise. People that are so easy to hate. God, what if it's those exact people you're sending us to? God, may we start to see with a little bit of your, your vision, with a little bit of your eyes, to see that the world is full of helpful, helpless, beloved people. <laughs> and your desire is to call them all home, to see them all come into your family. So far be it from us that we would stand back like the older brother, shaming the prodigal son. Mad that careless, reckless people would come in and defile your household. God, may we get out of our own way. May we follow where your Holy Spirit leads. And may we have the joy of participating in the Holy Spirit's work as we see the people you've placed right in front of us come to know you. The people you've placed right in front of us be healed and start to know your care, your mercy, and your kindness expressed to them through Jesus Christ in the power of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Oh God, do a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Hey, we're going to pray for a few minutes. Let's just take a moment here, sit with the Lord. Maybe we have some work to do. Maybe we have some processing we need to do in the, with the Holy Spirit and say, God, you've got to change some things. You've got to break some things. You've got to show me something here. I know who he's talking about. For you, you might know exactly who it is. And they've been here the whole time, but you never thought it was for them. But maybe it is. So I pray that God would do a work here today. That he would confront us like, 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 like the Holy Spirit, the angel, had to confront Peter. So that the good news of Jesus Christ, the saving power of the gospel, could break out. Break out. Go forth, starting with us. Starting here. That's my prayer for you. I'll be at the back. If you want to pray with someone, I'd love to pray with you. Curtis is back there too. But here's the thing. Make the most of this opportunity.